The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to bromleytownchurch.com. So I was thinking prisons, actors, you go straight to the Shawshank Redemption, don't you, and Morgan Freeman. But I thought there's no way I'm going to get Morgan Freeman to do um, a video promo. Um, and then I was watching TV one night and they, I was watching like an American show, like The Late Show or something like that. And they were, they were doing a trick, a prank on the audience. They convinced the audience they were speaking to Morgan Freeman on the telephone. And he was in a, in a plane that was about to crash. And Morgan Freeman, well, this guy came on and he's like, I'm on the plane, you know. And it was just like, he was so calm, yet this plane's crashing, you know. And everyone in the audience thinking, Morgan Freeman's on a plane that's going to crash. And then they revealed to them it was this guy. And... Um, I got hold of him because he does voiceovers, and uh, he agreed to do it. And when he heard my story, he didn't charge me a penny, which is fantastic. He charges about $150 a minute, and he does, like, TV adverts and movies, but he did it for free, uh, which was really... And he's not a Christian, but he still did it for free. So it's not Morgan Freeman, okay? So I'm not some big <laughs> superstar. It's, it's a real um, pleasure to be invited here this morning to be with you and to share my story. I must be honest with you. Um, I hate sharing my story. I hate it. Um, because it's just disgusting, really. It's just full of rubbish. And I hate sharing it. And also, you know, I was sitting with Terry here and we're talking about different things in our lives. And when you, we're remembering things, particularly bad things, or you're sharing them, you see the image in your mind, don't you? If I ask you to think about something uh, when you were a child, you, you would go there in your mind. And so every time I'm sharing my story, I'm having to go to places, I'm having to remember the things that God's forgot, you know? So I don't like it. The only thing that will keep me doing it is because it will get us to the good part. And that's why I will continue to share it. But, so I'm coming up from that place of I don't really like sharing what I'm sharing with you. And I'm very, very ashamed of, of much of, of what I'm sharing with you. Um... I was born in, in Glasgow. I know I don't have a Scottish accent. That's because when I was three, my family emigrated to South Africa. And I was raised in South Africa um, to the age of 10. In South Africa, my father joined the police force. As you, you saw in the video, that was a, a picture of my dad in his police uniform. And life was really good. It was very, very different from the streets of Glasgow. We came from abject poverty, really, uh, in a place called Mary Hill. And this new, new life in South Africa was, was amazing. Sun, sand, sea, monkeys in the trees. I used to think I was a mini Tarzan when I was a kid. I loved playing Tarzan and climbing the trees and chasing monkeys away. I had a, an amazing life in, in Africa. Um, but when I was 10, things changed for me quite dramatically. My grandfather, my mum's dad, back home, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And they said... So my granddad, you, you really need, you know, you, you've got a few weeks to live. And that was related to my mum. If you want to see your dad again, you should come home quickly. So arrangements were made for my mum and my little brother, who was about one and a half, 
at the time. It was fantastic back then because if you had a child under two, you could sit them on your lap on the aeroplane. They could fly for free. And so my mum and my little brother came back to England. My grandfather had moved to England by now. And um, I stayed in South Africa with my dad. Um, I had school. We were kind of coming towards the end of term. In South Africa, the long summer holidays, they happen at Christmas time because that's their summer. And I can remember um, summer holidays were just about to start. We were breaking up on a Thursday because I was excited. We weren't having to go in on a Friday. My dad came and picked me up from school uh, in the police car, took me home. And he said to me, you're a big boy now. You're 10 years old. I know mum's away and your little brother, but so I want you to be brave. I've got to lock you in by yourself as I've got to go to work. And it might be dark when I get home, so you've got to put yourself to bed. Well, I was a bit scared, but I was a brave boy. So off he went, and I took myself to bed that night. And woke up the next morning, and my dad wasn't there. Or the next morning, or the next morning, or the next morning. He'd run off with another woman, and he didn't come back. Now, fortunately, I was only locked in there for about four days. And some friends of the family came. They broke open the door, and they helped me to get back to the UK. So I stayed with them for a couple of weeks, and there was lots of arguments going on with my dad. Put on a plane and then sent back to the UK. Um, Liverpool was the first place that we went to. My family were living there. And it was a culture shock for me. In South Africa, uh, even now, I go back to South Africa on a regular basis, there's a lot of respect for elders and for teachers. Uh, anyone who's older than you, you would refer to as uncle or auntie. Uh, you would never say, oi, mate, or anything like that. You would, you would always go up to an older person, excuse me, uncle, uh, do you have the time? Uh, and that's just how it is. Everybody was your auntie or uncle. In school, you would never answer back to the teachers. You can imagine what it was like then arriving in Liverpool and just hearing the language, the cheek to the teachers, the disrespect. It was a shock to my system. I felt like a stranger in my own country. And then my grandfather died quite quickly, and my grandmother, she died soon after. And, of course, my mum was told then that her husband isn't coming back, and that he's met someone else, and it's all over. So we had nothing, really. We had a suitcase of clothes. Everything we had was in South Africa. Um, we needed to find somewhere to live, and we went back to Scotland. The only place we could find to live was on a housing estate on the outskirts of Glasgow. It was called Drumchapel. And this place was known as the worst housing estate in the whole of Europe at the time. It's the first place that I saw violence and drugs. Kids my own age, 10, 11 years old, sniffing bags of glue, uh, taking all sorts of drugs, carrying knives, got a big knife problem in Glasgow. And that was another shock to my system. And I stood out like a sore thumb because I was quite a polite little boy. And I had this kind of like South African accent going on. And I, I spoke nicely. And there I was in this school, and I can remember the first day at school being thrust up against the wall by what they called the cock of the school, the hardest lad in the school, and uh, grabbed hold of me by the lapels and muttered something like, I'm going to kick your head in, <laughs> which is the English way of saying, would you like a fight after school? <laughs> and, and I was too polite to say no, and I agreed, and we had this fight, and I somehow won the fight accidentally, um, not because I was a good fighter, I'd never had a fight before, but I discovered I had an ability to take a punch. I was one of those guys 
being hit over the head with a baseball bat and I won't go down. Other guys have a glass jaw, don't they? Crack them once in the jaw and they fall over. I was the type that you would have to kill me to make me put me down. And I didn't know that, and neither did he. And I think he must have punched me in the head so many times he got exhausted. And when I did land a lucky punch, he fell over and I won the fight. And what I discovered is the next day in school, I was the hero. And I very quickly put two and two together. In that housing estate, in that society, you earn respect with your fists. Not by how clever or kind or smart you are, by how hard you are. And so violence, to me, became a bit of a friend. I also saw a lot of violence that really angered me. I was an angry kid. I hated the police with a vengeance, because my father was a policeman, remember? I hated the police, and also on that housing estate, I saw a lot of violent men beating their wives up. In the days when, if the police were called to a situation like that, they just wiped their hands of it and said, it's a domestic, nothing to do with us. Thankfully, things have changed, but my goodness, we saw neighbors, women with broken noses and cauliflower ears from what their husbands had done, and the police would do nothing, and it just really angered me, and I wanted to take the law into my own hands. A few years later, we moved to Merseyside, back to Birkenhead, and now I had a Scottish accent. Again, I stood out like a sore thumb, but I was a little bit more street savvy, and I never really applied myself at school. I was good at sports, I was good at rugby, and um, that's the only thing that saved me, I think, from being expelled, because I was the best rugby player in the school, and they wanted me in the first 15, so I, I swung a lot of favour with the sports teachers when it came I was cheeky as well, I was horrible to the teachers. My younger brother really suffered after me when he went to my high school and they said, oh, are you, are you uh, John Lawson's brother? He got, really, he got a bad time from the teachers because of me. And um, by the time I left school, I had no real qualifications to speak of and I just wanted money. As a young man, I broke into factories and climbing through the roof would be our, our, our MO and climb in and steal whatever we could and go out shoplifting, all that kind of stuff. I was a real idiot. My mum thought I was an angel, though. I, I never brought the police to my door. I always thought I was smarter than the police. Um, I left school and became a bouncer, began to work in the nightclubs. I worked in the nightclubs all over Manchester and Blackburn and Burnley and Oldham, all these kind of places. I worked for a, a company that would send its men to nightclubs where they couldn't handle the problems anymore. So, I don't know Bromley, but I'm sure you must have some nightclubs here, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, there will be um, a nightclub in every town where the local gangsters or drug dealers might go and take advantage, might sell their drugs there. Uh, they might intimidate the door staff there because they're local and there's always going to be repercussions. And so what, what happens is, in places like that, you end up with doormen that can be intimidated or become part of the problem, and you have local gangsters taking the mick. And how you solve that situation is, you bring in a team from the outside into Bromley, who don't give a toss who you are, or what you are, or what your reputation is, are not intimidated by, by the whole, do you know who I am? Couldn't care who you are, mate, you ain't getting in. And that's how you deal with it, and you have to be confrontational, it gets very vi violent, and so, the level of violence in my life began to increase. Um, we would go to work with bulletproof vests on in Manchester where there was drive-by shootings on the door. Um, I would always carry collapsible nunchuckers, which is a martial arts weapon, knuckle dusters, shin pads, 
cricket boxes to protect ourselves. We went quite heavily armed and, and we were very brutal. And I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, I enjoyed it. I liked nothing more than the long drive home from Manchester with blood on my shirt and all the lads talking about them teeth that got knocked out, which is quite ironic because I, I fell over this week and knocked my tooth out here. <laughs> uh, so I've got to go to the dentist next week, which I'm dreading. Um, but we would uh, boast about these things, you see, and I enjoyed it. And I was the head doorman. I used to like organizing things and, and I was very strict. I didn't like drugs in my clubs. I didn't like any nonsense. We would deal very harshly with you and try and restore order. And that meant that there was a lot of violence. We trained together as a group of doormen. They were, they were all into martial arts. I worked with a team of men who were all ex-Special Forces soldiers to one degree or the other. One was a, a para, there was a French foreign legionnaire, and there was a guy from the Reckies, which is um, South African Special Forces. And we were a very, very tight team, so we didn't stand for any messing. We weren't going around saying we were the hardest bunch in the world, but we were very organized and very well equipped, and we could deal with most situations. And that was my life. I got married at a young age and divorced, married and divorced in the same year. Um, became a single father at 20, 22, 23, and wanted, I just wanted money. I wanted money because I knew money was the answer to all of life's problems. As long as you had money, everything else would be okay. Uh, my uncles were doing really well in Soho in London. They were running the sex industry, working with the Maltese Mafia. Um, it's now the Albanians that run Soho, but back then it was the Maltese Mafia. And so I was attracted down to Soho to be with my uncles. Um, we would run peep shows and hostess bars. If you don't know what a hostess bar is, it's nothing but a clip joint where you come in and think you're going to see some kind of live nude show um, and you're going to pay excessive amounts for a drink and get ripped off with a massive bill and you're not going to see anything and then you're going to be asked to leave. Um, peep shows where people put a coin in a slot and there's a, a mirror with a light and two-way mirror. When the light goes off, you can see the naked girl behind there. And for me, that was exciting as a young man to be living and working in Soho. Uh, my uncles were making multi-millions from that industry. And this resulted in my first uh, trip to prison where an American tourist didn't want to pay his bill and, and I threatened him and he ran to the police and I went to jail. It did nothing for me. It was just a very short nine-month sentence. I had to then come home to Merseyside. My uncles wanted me out of the way for a while. And I uh, went back on the doors, began to work as a bouncer again. And I joined the motorcycle gang because I, I wanted something. See, I wanted to, to be a member of something, to join something. I wanted some brotherhood or relationship building exercise or something. I don't know. But I joined the motorcycle gang. I had a big, like a Harley type chopper. It wasn't a Harley, but um, it was the best I could do. And just again, became a real idiot. We'd drive around with one of the motorcycle patches on my back, like the Hells Angels kind of guys. We got involved in all sorts of stupid things. And um, eventually I trained as a bodyguard. I went back down to London again, worked with my uncles in, in the sex industry for a while, got into more trouble. As a bodyguard, I began to work with some rich and famous people. I had a short time with the Rolling Stones, which for me was exciting. And I would boast about how amazing it was to meet Mick Jagger and I had to look after Keith Richard. And um, it was the most boring job that I had in my life, to be honest with you. I don't have any Rolling Stones stories to tell you. My job was to sit in a corridor in a hotel and make sure he didn't get disturbed on the night shift. So 12 hours sitting on a chair like you're doing now, 
uh, and maybe a slight bit of interaction. Uh, morning, morning, how you doing? All right, yeah. That was about as much conversation as I had with the Rolling Stones. Uh, but I would lie to all my mates about how me and the Rolling Stones were bosom buddies, you know, Mick Jagger's my mate and all that kind of stuff. Because, um, you know, we want to show off, don't we, in life. And again, I wanted money because money was the answer to all of life's problems for me. Um, by now, our team, we had a, a, a reputation of being able to get the job done. And the circles I was, I was mixing in now, um, there was always somebody somewhere that owed somebody some money. In, the, in those circles, a lot, of, a lot of rich guys, a lot of dodgy business going on, drug dealing. And when those rich people have a problem with money, they don't want to get their hands dirty. No, they come to idiots like me, scumbags like us. And for me, I craved the excitement of an operation. In fact, I used to quote from the movie Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Anyone seen that film? There was a line in that that I applied to my life, and it's where Robert De Niro, who's the bad guy, is robbing all these banks, and he's got a lot of money in a big house, and Al Pacino meets up with him in a diner and tells him he's going to catch him one day, and he says, why don't you just quit? You know, you don't need the money. And De Niro said, I ain't in it for the money, I'm in it for the action. And that was me. I, I enjoyed the planning, the operation, um, taking people down that owed money, and it started off just really um, taxing drug dealers. So other drug dealers in town would maybe want to get rid of another drug dealer, a rival. They would come to us, professional men, and we would come into your house and hold you hostage and, and just beat you in ways that I just don't want to describe today um, to get you out of town. And I was doing society a favor, right? Because they're just scumbag drug dealers. So they deserve it. And, uh, you know, we would take pride in flushing their drugs down the toilet, taking all their money. We got to keep all the money. What good, good guys we were. I believe that was a good man. I was married again, had kids, I loved my wife and family. I'd read my kids' bedtime stories and then go and put a balaclava on and pick up a shotgun and go hold men hostage and beat them. I was a good man. And that was my life. And the level of kidnapping and extortion increased dramatically, where now we were involved in multi-million pound deals where we would be sent abroad to come and find you if you were stupid enough to have stolen money from these people. So our job was to come and find you which I would send a team, the, the paratrooper, and the South African guy would go out and do all the recce work, and they would find you, and then we'd do video surveillance, and I would plan all that. How are we gonna take you down? Are we gonna, are we gonna come in through your front door? Full breach, as they say. Uh, are we gonna kidnap you somewhere else? Are you gonna have to be killed? I don't know, these are the kind of things I was planning. And um, I remember this client, he'd stolen 13 million pounds from our German client, and he wanted his money back. And we went to kidnap this guy in Spain. And the, the, the option that I took was we have to kill him. And I was the one that was prepared to pull the trigger. Fortunately, though, before that happened, on the day that we went to kidnap him, um, a whole busload of his family turned up for a three-week holiday at his house, and we had to call it off. I came back to the UK, and thankfully, at this point, the police finally caught up with me. I was caught and charged with attempted extortion. I was, uh, I'd kidnapped some people and they'd run to the police. See, we, we had this pride thing um, as a team of men that we wouldn't deal with civilians. We would only deal with criminals. We wouldn't take a dump on our own doorstep. We wouldn't do anything personal. And we outsmarted the police on every occasion. And then we broke our rules. 
We did something personal on our own doorstep, and it was a civilian. It was a guy owed a guy that I know a lot of money, and the situation arose where the police got involved, and I got sent to prison. I got four years in the High Court in Edinburgh for attempted extortion. A month later, they rounded up the rest of my team. They took me to court one day from prison, and um, they opened this door and pushed me in, and there I was in the courtroom. I was like, what am I doing here? And they said, you're a compellable witness against your, your mates. And the judge said, pick up that Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I told him where he could stick his truth. It wasn't somewhere very nice. And the judge thanked me by giving me a year and a half for contempt of court. So there I was, now serving five and a half years in prison. The Proceeds of Crime Act came into force where the government seized all of my assets. And rightly so, they should, they should do. I had a really, really big house on the outskirts of Edinburgh. I had my big chopper, I had a Range Rover, my wife had a car, we had nice holidays. Um, as money is the answer to all of life's problems, right? Well, at least that's what I thought. And, you know, I'd heard something from the Bible, which was, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And so that was my attitude towards these guys. You know, they're, they're the baddies. I'm the good guy. I'm, I'm a good guy. You know, I give money to charity. I help people as well. And I just happen to go off and kidnap men and, and, and threaten to kill them. But I'm a good guy. And it's weird how we can cover up the things we do in life by convincing ourselves that we're good men. And that's what I did. So there I was in prison, the government seized the house, the cars, the money, and my wife and kids had to go into temporary accommodation, and now f my actions had an impact on my family, and I felt like a real idiot. It didn't take too long before my wife said, I've had enough, look at all the trouble you've caused, and we got divorced while I was in prison, and my attitude was fine. I'll find someone else, no problem. I had a bad attitude, and you know, in prison, you meet many kinds of men. You meet some really, really good guys. You've got everything from mass murderers to vulnerable people that have maybe had an accident in a car crash and someone's died and they've never done anything else in their lives. You get people that will pick on people. You get bullies. Like I say, you get the whole spectrum. And in prison, everything's amplified. Uh, but in prison as well, you meet some decent, decent guys. And um, I made friends in prison with a Nigerian. Is there any Nigerians here today? Oh, no, this is going to be embarrassing. <laughs> See, I can't do the next bit without doing my Nigerian accent. <laughs> so you're going to have to forgive me, okay? You can rate me on how, how well I do on it, okay? I go to Nigeria on a regular basis as well. I think my next trip is to Bielsa State. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but uh, Tony was Nigerian, and he was always, he was a happy guy. He was always smiling. I think Nigerians, sorry about the rest of you, and I don't mean this to be racist against you white boys, but I think Nigerians have amongst the biggest, whitest smiles I've ever seen in my life. When a Nigerian smiles, I mean, he lights up the room. Look, go on, mate, smile. <laughs> Put pressure on him there, right? You know, look, this guy's doing it already. But like for me, Nigerians, they just got this way of smiling, you know? And uh, I could see Tony uh, from the other side of the prison yard with his smile. He would always smile. He would always approach me every Thursday. And I really liked him. He, he, he didn't ask the usual prison questions. What are you in for and how long are you serving? 
He never came to borrow anything off you or, or, or wanted something. He just wanted to be a friend. Uh, but there was one thing I didn't like about Tony. Um, he was a Christian. He was always harping on about Jesus and God, and I gave him a hard time. Yeah? Yeah, where's your God now then, Tony? Hey? Where is he? Is he going to come down here with a magic key and let you out of prison, you idiot? Uh, but he, he was always kind to me, you know? He never, he never had a go at me. And every Thursday, I can remember for almost four months, I'd see him in the prison yard, and he'd always look at his watch, and he'd always say to me, Hello, my friend. How are you today? <laughs> How's that? Is that, is that good? Hello, my friend. How are you today? And I'd say, I'm in prison. <laughs> How do you think I'm doing today? And he'd always look at his watch again, and he'd go, <clears throat> Do you know what day it is today? <laughs> I'd be like, Yeah, it's Thursday, Tony. I'm counting the days. No, it's not Thursday today. It's Christian Fellowship Day today. <laughs> That's my Nigerian accent, okay? How was it? Was it kind of okay? I like the way he used to say, Thursday. And um, I always remember his favorite hymn in the hymn book was uh, number 33. <laughs> 33. <laughs> I used to be like that, 33, 33. And... Um, but anyway, he, every Thursday, he would invite me to the Christian fellowship. Do you know what day it is today? <laughs> I'd be like, I'm not interested, Tony. Okay, you can keep it. Um, but one Thursday, I changed my mind. Because he shared something with me, very, very important, actually, as a prisoner. He told me that the pastor who comes into the prison, he brings with him nice cake and coffee and biscuits. <laughs> I said, you didn't tell me that before. <laughs> Four months, you could have shared that with me, for goodness sake. Why are you only telling me now? I changed my mind. I put my name down on the sheet at the wing office. The screw, sorry, the prison officer. I shouldn't say screw anymore. The prison officer uh, nearly fell off his chair. It's like, you? I said, yeah, put me down for the fellowship thing, Bible thing, whatever it is. And, um, and I went off, and I went with the intention of stealing as many cakes and coffees because they had those nice sachets of Nescafe, and I was used to drinking prison coffee, which is like chicory. It was horrible. And... Um, I remember going there, and we walked into this chapel, and this, this pastor was greeting everyone with hugs, and I thought, if he hugs me, I'm going to break his jaw. <laughs> you, you don't hug men in prison. Well, not in, openly, you know. And um, I, I wasn't used to it. Christians have got this thing. They hug each other. I don't know. I still can't work it out today. Is it a handshake or is it a hug? What is it? You know? And I was always a handshake man, and I've learned now to be a bit of a hugger as well. Um, but I saw him hugging these men. I was like, I don't like that. What was all this weird stuff? He didn't hug me because I just thrust out my hand at a distance and welcomed me in. And all I could think about was the table over there with the cake and coffee and biscuits. And I did know one thing about Christians. When they pray, they close their eyes, right? <laughs> so I was just like making my way over here, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, all right, when they get in their holy huddles and say their prayers, I'm going to fill my pockets because it was winter and we had big donkey jackets on with big, big pockets. But before I could steal anything, the pastor moved us over to this side, and there was a group of chairs and a semicircle. And we all sat down. I can remember there was 12 other guys there that day, that evening. Murderers, lifers, drug dealers, bank robbers, a violent idiot like me. And uh, the pastor got out this guitar, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to get hallelujahs and kumbayas now. And they handed out these song sheets on laminated paper. And then... Really, something remarkable happened. These other prisoners, they just began to relax. They looked happy. They began to raise up their hands and lean back in their chairs. And they began to sing in a way I never imagined Christian men singing before. 
I was imagining it like songs of praise, you know. Uh, very high-pitched and all that kind of stuff. But these guys went for it. It was a real gospel song. This pastor almost bust the strings of the guitar. I'll never forget the song. It was called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And it was like a rock version of that song. And as I was reading the words of the song sheet, I, I, I just knew I was going to cry in that moment. I couldn't explain it. I felt it in my stomach first and my chest and my throat. And then I could feel the tears were going to come. And I, I didn't want to let... People see me crying in prison. So I hid my face behind the song sheet. I think they must have thought I was blind because I had it up close to me. But I cried like a baby. I cried so much. And I don't really remember much more about that evening. I wish I could. I've gone back in my mind so many times. I can't remember what else happened. But I know I had an uncomfortable sleep that night in my cell. Very uncomfortable sleep. And I woke up the next day and it was Friday morning, and I had a job in the prison library as the cleaner. And the regime changes on a Friday in prison. You get what they call early bang-up, so you get locked up at 4 o'clock. And so you're keen to get out to work. It's also a good day because that's when your canteen arrives as well. So I'm keen to get to work. The guards unlock the door, and I go to go out, and there's Tony. There's something behind his back. Hello, my friend. How are you today? <laughs> so uh, what do you want, Tony? He said, uh, I have something for you, my friend. I said, what, what have you got? And he produces a Bible. I said, I don't want your Bible. I don't want your Bible. He said, you were touched by the Holy Spirit last night. I said, hey, 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 hey. Listen, nobody touched me, mate, okay? There's, nobody touched me. And he really insisted that I, I take this Bible, and I kind of threw it reluctantly onto my bed. And that evening, when I was locked up, I didn't know what to do with this Bible, but I opened it, and... I read the very, the very first thing I read, the Bible, impacted me. It's where I get the title of my book, which is called, obviously, If a Wicked Man. There's a plug, If a Wicked Man. But it's where I get the title from. I opened the Bible in the book of Ezekiel. It was Ezekiel 18, 27 to 38. And I read this, but if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, he can save his life, he won't have to die because he considers all of the offenses that he's committed and he turns away from them, he will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. And then we have the complaint, the house of Israel, God's children. They say, oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. <laughs> and God says, no, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent. Rid yourself of all the offences you committed, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Well, I don't know what those words mean to you, but there in my prison cell, as I looked in the mirror, it was like watching a film of my life, and I realised in that moment that I, that was me. I was the wicked man. I was. And, I, and I, what I did know is I wanted a new heart and a new spirit. I knew I couldn't carry on. I knew I was going to kill people. I, I couldn't carry on like this. I ruined everything. I wanted a new heart and a new spirit, but I didn't know how to get it. I couldn't figure out. I was trying to read the Bible to find out, okay, he'll give you a new heart and spirit, but how do you get it? I didn't understand the process. The following Thursday, I went back to the Bible study, and I asked that pastor, 
Is it true? Is, it, can, is this true that God can give you a new heart and a new spirit? And he sat down with me and he shared the gospel message with me in a very simple way. It wasn't complicated. He talked to me about two things that I could do in that prison. And if I did these two things, then God would give me a new heart and a new spirit. And I did. About a week later in that prison, I did these two things in prison. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he began to change me in that prison. He began to soften my hard heart. Um, I was telling Terry earlier that people began to notice that my language changed. I wasn't swearing anymore. I noticed that my compassion had changed. Whereas I, I just wouldn't have nothing to do with junkies. In the dining hall, if a junkie came and sat next to you, I'd be like, beat it, mate. See you later. And, and, and now I was like, I would let them sit down and I'd be like, hey, mate, what, what happened to you, you know? What, what happened in your life? And these stories would pour out of abuse and rejection and abandonment and the care system and the life of drugs. And I just felt, felt for these people. God began to change me. And in that prison, I felt free behind bars. You see, I don't believe that you have to be behind bars to be in prison. I think some of you could be in a prison right here, right now. What's your prison? Is your prison an anger issue? Maybe you're sitting here all nice now, but maybe at home, are you angry with your missus and kids? Or, or wait, what about when you're behind the wheel of a car? Do you get violent then or angry then? What if I push the right button? Will it surface? What is your prison? Is it something you're looking at on the internet? You shouldn't be looking at at all? Is it a drug problem, an alcohol problem? Is it a self-image problem? What's your prison? You could be in a prison in church where you go every Sunday and say the right things, but you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus came to set the prisoners free. And in that real prison, he set me free. Two and a half years later, when I was released from prison, it wasn't a big day for me. My mate had to take me to the homeless section because I had nowhere to live. I had two bin bags of clothing to my name and reported homeless. And he wanted to take me out and party that night and celebrate and go find me a woman. And, 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 you know, you've been in prison. You need to get yourself a woman and get yourself laid. And you need to have a few beers. And I said, Tom, I'm finished with all that, mate. I said, I just need to go and take care of business here now. And uh, I said, anyway, <laughs> Jesus already set me free a couple of years ago. And from that day onwards, he's rebuilt my life in so many ways. And yet there's so many days I fail him. But he's rebuilding my life, still doing it today. And I'm very happily married to Carolyn, a wonderful Christian girl. I have a great relationship with my ex-wife and kids. And, and I get to travel. I, I work ever since then. I just I knew that I had to give something back to God. Uh, and also, by the way, I, I read this thing called the Great Commission, where Jesus commands us to go into the world and share our faith. I, didn't understand, I don't understand Christians who don't do that. I don't. I'm sorry to be hard on you if you're not sharing your faith, but let your own conscience be your guide. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone if you're a Christian? Spurgeon said, if your gospel is not touching others, it hasn't touched you. I wonder about that. I want to encourage you Christians here, share your faith. Because Jesus Christ died and bled and rose again for you. And also he asked you to go and do it. And I just knew I wanted to go and share my faith. And ever since then, I've worked in full-time faith-based ministry. So I don't get paid for what I do. And the Lord has taken me to over 20 countries. 
I go and visit some of the most violent, toughest prisons on the planet, as well as schools and events like this. And I'll keep doing it to the day I die. And just, you try to stop me. I love Jesus. He changed my life. But I didn't share with you what those two things were that I did in prison, did I? I'm going to share them with you before I leave today. But I want to take a quick break by showing you a video. So if we can have the sound ready. Um, the reason I'm showing you this video is because we're men here today, the ladies as well, but as men, you know, we live in a fatherless generation, generation today. We see what's, what's happening with society. And a lot of that's to do with broken homes, broken marriages, and fathers not being around and being that role model for young men. And I wanted to try and find a video, because I like videos, that could express a father's love to a son. And this video, to me, speaks of a father's love. You may have seen it before. It's about a father and son called Dick and Ricky Hoyt. The father has a heart condition. He's an ex-military man. And his son says to him one day, Dad, would you run with me in the local charity race? The father with the heart condition agrees. They run the race. They don't do too well. And then the son says, would you run with me in a marathon? Well, they've run over 50 marathons today. And finally, the son says, Father, would you run with me in Ironman? Now, if you don't know what Ironman is, um, well, there's three events you have to do. You have to swim in the open sea for four kilometers. You have to get out of the sea and get on a bicycle, and you have to cycle 140 kilometers. You get off your bike, and you've got to run the other 42 kilometers to the end. And really, I'll let the video speak for itself. If we could have the lights down, that would be great, and um, enjoy, this, enjoy this video. Can't do anything without. Isn't that amazing? Amazing, isn't it? Um, a father expressing his love for his son, the father with the heart condition. Ricky, the boy, is paraplegic and can't use his arms or his legs. He can only speak by breathing through a tube into a special computer. And they asked the boy, Ricky, uh, what does it feel like when you're in Iron Man? And amazingly, he said, when I'm running with my father, it's like all my disabilities disappear. Isn't that amazing? He was using his father's legs. You know, many of us here have far greater health than that boy, but many of us can be much, much more disabled than him in many ways. And we've got to let our father run for us, you know? Let your father run for him. I love the way the Bible puts it in Romans 5, verse 8. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ still died for us. Isn't that amazing? Well, I want to really finish by giving you an explanation of the gospel. <clears throat> for some reason, it's not showing you properly. Um, I don't know if many of you have seen an explanation of the gospel like this before from an ex-convict like me, but um, you don't have to believe this, you know. You've got free will, and you might think that this is a load of rubbish. That's okay. <laughs> um, but just please remember, it was this load of rubbish that changed this load of rubbish right in front of you, okay? Basically, the Bible says that God is holy, 
and that heaven is holy. And did you know that that word holy, it just means perfect? And it's important to understand that God, he cannot allow anything imperfect into heaven. Because if he did, well, it just wouldn't be heaven anymore. Now, all of us, we, we have a body and we have a soul. And when we die, our bodies are buried or cremated. There you go. But your soul, which is the real you, well, according to the Bible, that's going to live on forever, either in heaven or in hell. And there's no third place for us to go to. But you see, we've got a bit of a problem. Because the Bible says that if we've lied once, if we've cheated once, hated once, just once, then it's like our soul, it becomes imperfect. And think of the logic of that. With an imperfect soul, it's impossible to get into heaven. So my question for you is this. Do you know anyone in the world today that's never broken any of God's laws? Well, the answer's clearly no, and well, neither do I. So you see, that's our problem. All people have broken God's laws. Therefore, all people surely have these imperfect souls. And again, the logic of that is, with an imperfect soul, well, it's impossible to get to heaven, because in order to get to heaven, well, we have to be perfect. And considering none of us are, surely we're all headed to hell. Now, people say, well, that's a little bit harsh, John. How could this loving God create a place called hell, let alone actually send someone there? Well, listen, let me explain to you why I believe God has created this place called hell. I want you to think of someone in your life who you love very much. And, you know, we live in a harsh world. Imagine the person you love is a shot. Boom. They're murdered. And they catch the murderer. There he is in court on the right-hand side. And that murderer pleads guilty. Yeah, I killed that person's loved one. I'm guilty. But to your horror, well, the judge says this. Well, this is a really bad thing that you've done. But don't worry, because I'm a loving judge. Well, I'm just going to let you off. Well, you'd be really angry, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Yeah, well, why would you be angry? Well, because you know that when someone's broken the law, well, they must be punished, otherwise there's no justice. So you see, hell is not a love issue, it's a justice issue. Now, someone asked me some questions one time that helped me understand this a little bit more. They said to me, have you ever told lies in your life? And I said, yeah. Now, if you tell lies, that makes you a liar. Would, would you agree? So I'm a liar, you see. Well, let me ask you the question. Have any of you ever told a lie in your life? If you have, would you raise up your hand and show me? Keep your hands up. I want to get a photograph. <laughs> okay. Let's get all the liars in Bromley. All right. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So if you raise your hand, you're saying you're a liar just like me. Jonathan, I've got a nice picture of all the liars. I'll share it with you later. Oh, hang on a minute. There's a couple of you that didn't raise your hands. <laughs> that's okay, but that's the second lie you told. <laughs> all right? <laughs> so really, in this room, we're all saying, whether we're, you know, pastors or leaders or Christians, uh, that we're all the same. We're all a bunch of liars. Is that right? Yeah? Now, I've taken things in life that didn't belong to me. Well, that would make me a thief. I want to ask you the same question. Have you ever taken anything in this world that wasn't yours? Have you ever downloaded a DVD without permission? You know, have you ever taken something home from the office? Anything, your whole lives. Come on, show me. I know you're a bunch of liars, so you may as well be honest now. Okay, put your hands down. So, really, I think, well done. That was everybody in this room. So, again, in this fine church, we're all a bunch of thieving liars. Is that correct? And... You know, do you think God is going to allow a bunch of thieving liars like, like us into heaven? You see, I don't think he would. 
Because surely, if God allowed a bunch of thieving liars like us into heaven, wouldn't God be the same as that unjust judge? Do you remember him, the one that failed to punish the murderer of the one you love? You see, we can't have it both ways. And people try and correct me, oh, but John, come on, you know, lying and stealing, they're just small things. <laughs> Everyone's done those things. I'm, I'm not a murderer. I wasn't like you planning to kill somebody. And while that may be true, isn't it interesting the way the Bible redefines words like murder? Because Jesus said, if you've hated someone in your heart, well, then you've murdered them in your heart. So last question. How about you? Have you ever felt hatred? For someone your whole life, even just once, you got so angry, you don't have to raise your hands. I know pretty much we've all done that. You see, according to God's perfect law, that would place us in the same category as someone that's actually murdered someone. So, again, this is only three of God's ten commandments. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask you about the other seven because I don't want to embarrass us any further. But something tells me if we were going to be judged just on these three commandments alone, I think we'd all be in a lot of trouble, don't you? And that's the bad news of the Bible, you see. The Bible's full of good news, but there's some bad news in there as well. The bad news of the Bible is that for the sake of justice, well, there has to be this place called hell. There has to be this place called hell. But listen, I'm not here today just to focus on the bad news. No, not at all. No, I want to bring you some amazing news, fantastic news, that every single one of us can be forgiven. And that's why Jesus, he's my hero. You talk, Johnny talked earlier about who's your hero. Well, Jesus is my hero. For a start, today's date is the 4th of March. I can't ever forget that date. It's my son's birthday today. But uh, it's that date today, the 4th of March 2017, because Jesus Christ split the timeline, didn't he? Things like BC and AD. We have things like Christmas and Easter. All these dates in our diary that remind us whether you follow Christ or not, your whole life is based around his calendar anyway. They remind us of his birth and his death and his resurrection. But they're just dates the real reason that Jesus is my hero is the difference between his soul and ours because we've just all admitted that we're imperfect. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is perfect. He's perfect. And I want you to picture the scene here. Okay, this is supposed to be a representation of God the Father and the throne and Jesus at his right-hand side. And they look forward in time. And they saw us all sitting here this morning in Bromley. And it's kind of like this. This is how I see the scenario. It's like Jesus turned to God the Father and said, Father, I really love those people in Bromley Town. I love them so much, and I don't want any of them to go to hell for breaking your laws. Is there a way for them to be forgiven? And it's like God the Father said, Jesus, my son, I love you so much. But if you go to earth and become a human being, if you live a perfect life like no one else, and then you die a cruel, painful death on the cross to take the punishment which all those people there justly deserve for breaking my laws, then yes, I'll make it possible for every single one of them to be forgiven on the day that they turn to you in faith and they ask you to exchange their imperfect record for your perfect record. You see, guys, we're only made perfect in God's eyes through the perfection of Christ. There's nothing we can do to attain that. And you know what Jesus said? I'll do it. I'll do it. And he came and he lived this life on earth and he died on that cross. And he did that for you and me. And he bled and he died. And he took the sins of the world upon him. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. And he's very much alive today. Now, there are three major events in life. There's birth and there's death, which we have no control over. But the third major event is on that day that we can turn to Christ. That's when we can ask him to forgive us. So technically, we're asking him to exchange our imperfect record for his perfect record. 
Now, we're not forgiven by being christened or baptized or being confirmed or by praying or going to church or believing God exists. Even the devil believes God exists or trying to be good. Now, they're all good things. But according to the Bible, it's not the criteria for forgiveness. Jesus said there are two things we can do. The first one is we must be willing to turn away from anything we know is wrong in life. Like me in that prison cell. I came to that place and I recognized what I was. And, and there was something in me that was willing to turn to him. Say sorry. Please notice the word I said was willing because some things in life you're going to feel powerless to give up in your own strength. That's okay. God will help you with those things as long as you're willing and you want to turn away from them. And the second thing, well, after we've said sorry to Jesus, is to surrender your life to Christ. Well, what does surrender mean? Surrender really means this, that if God made you in your mother's womb, if he made the entire universe around you, don't you think that God deserves to be the most central person in your life? You see, surrendering is when we acknowledge that Jesus is God and we put our full faith and trust in him. So say you decided to turn and surrender today. Right now, today, what would it be like for you? Well, I want you to imagine that this is the place where you were born. Um, that little baby there is you, there's the nurse, and that's your mum. And on the day you were born, it's like God opened this book about your life. And everything we've ever done in our lives is written into that book. Please bear in mind, God never sleeps. God sees every thought, every motive, every attitude, every action. You can imagine that by the end of our lives, there's this whole stinking library written against us. But the most amazing thing is this, that when we turn and surrender our lives to Christ and he forgives us, it's like he stands at the top of a cliff and he tears out the pages of every wrong thing we've ever done and he casts them into the deepest sea. And the Bible says God chooses never to remember those things again. Never. And then surely he must take your book and put in a copy of Christ's perfect record with your name on the spine and your book must be stored like a, li a precious library book but in heaven where it will never be written into again if God has completely forgiven you and chooses never to remember those things again from the moment you're forgiven to the moment you die. Even though in that time, if you're like me, you're going to break God's laws again and again, but come on, don't you think there should be some evidence in your life that the bad things are happening less and less and less as you're surrendering to Christ? There should be some evidence of that. And then one day when you die, you're going to stand at the foot of God. There you are down there next to an angel and God will command one of his angels to get your book and he's going to open your book and he's going to look inside and he's going to say, you were perfect. And you're going to say, no, no, I wasn't. I had my hands up at Bromley Town Church that day and I admitted I'm a lying, thieving murderer. Surely I, I deserve to go to hell. And Jesus, who's been interceding for you, will say, well, for the sake of justice, yes, you deserve to go to hell. You did break my laws and some you broke many times, but you... My beautiful son or daughter, well, you have a copy of my perfect record, which I gave to you on earth that day when you turned and you surrendered your life to me, and I forgave you. And for that reason, and that reason alone, welcome to heaven. See, that's why Jesus is my hero. But as we finish, what would it be like if you never surrendered your life to Christ? The Bible says one day when we die, we're going to stand before God on judgment day. There you are, and... I can't imagine the scene without Jesus weeping and, and crying. And I think he would say something like this to you. I'm really sorry, people of Bromley Town. You see, I can't let you enter heaven. I can't. I have to send you to hell because you've chosen it. 
you never turned and surrendered your life to me and I loved you so much I tried at least six ways to get through to you. Firstly, I died on that cross. I was nailed to that cross. I was beaten and whipped and scourged. And I bled and I died for you and I took the sins of the world upon me and you did nothing. And please don't tell me nobody ever told you because remember that day on the 4th of March when I sent John and others into your life to share that message with you? Don't tell me nobody ever told you. Thirdly, well, come on, I put churches all over the world. You could have found a good church. Fourthly, I gave you a conscience. You always knew the difference between right and wrong. You always did. And I made a world around you so beautiful. How could you never look at the stars and think about me? And finally, I rose again from the dead to prove to you that everything I said was true, but you did nothing. So I'm so sorry if you're going to hell it's because you've chosen it. Well, I've tried to be as honest as I can with you today. How about you guys? How about you be honest with yourselves? How about you? If you died tonight, where would you go? Would you go to heaven or, or would you go to hell? Well, look, if, you, if you're not sure, in order to get to heaven, we've got to have this perfect record, right? Now, there's only two ways to get a perfect record. Well, you could be a perfect person. <laughs> I don't think so. We've all blown that one. Secondly, well, you could ask Jesus Christ for a copy of his perfect record. And finally, what were those two things again that Jesus said that we can do? Well, the first thing, we must be willing to turn away. There must be a willingness to turn away from the bad things in life, to want that change. And secondly, surrender your life to Christ and live it out. Don't just come to church on a Sunday. Live it out on a daily basis. Follow him. Make him your Lord and make him your saviour. You see, unless we're willing to surrender our lives to Christ, well, it's impossible to get to heaven. And that's so sad. Because that's why Jesus came and died for you and for me. Guys, would you do me the honour of allowing me to pray for you? Would that be okay? Would you mind bowing your heads and closing your eyes? You don't have to pray if you don't want to as well. You've got free will. But if you'd, if you'd like to pray, then you guys just close your eyes. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the hospitality that's been shown here and the food. Thank you for your amazing love. Father, I, I, I don't know what to say. I just, I just love you. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I want to ask you guys a question while you have your eyes closed. I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up or come down to the front. But if you would like to turn and surrender your life to Christ right now, then I would really like to pray for you. If that's you, and you'd like to turn and surrender your life to Christ right now, can I ask you just to raise up your hand where you are? So I know who I'm praying for. Yeah, God bless you. God bless you, young man. Remember, I'm asking you to commit your lives to Christ this morning. Is there anyone else that wants to do that today? And I'm going to ask another question now. For those of you who are already Christians, I want to ask you this question. How's your relationship with God? Please keep your eyes closed. Let your conscience guide you. How's your relationship with God? Are you walking closely with him? 
Have you kept him at a distance? Are you taking him for granted? Maybe today's the day where you get right with God again. Maybe today's the day where you, you make that recommitment to him and draw close to him again. You make a stand today. If that's you, you acknowledge that. You want to recommit today to Christ and draw close to him. Again, please, just raise up your hand quickly so I can see you. God bless you. God bless you. Don't, there's nothing to be ashamed of as well. Is there anyone else? Okay. Put your hand down. I'm going to pray for both of you. Well, both of those things. Um, also, as well, I want you to know that there's nothing in the Bible that says you become a Christian by saying some quick prayer or coming down to the front or raising your hand. No, no. You see, you become a Christian by putting your faith and trust in Christ. This prayer is not a special prayer that is written down somewhere. No, but it can be a first step. The reason that I will, I will call any of you to give your lives to Christ is because the Bible says, Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before the heavenly hosts. And so today, those of you that raised your hand, or even if you didn't, but you're doing it in your heart, and you're acknowledging Christ before men today. So I'm going to help those of you that are making that first-time commitment to Christ today. Maybe take a first step on that journey to knowing him. You might want to repeat this prayer after me, under your breath and your heart. It's just a prayer I prayed in prison, and it really helped me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I don't know what to say to you again. I'm, I'm just lost, and I'm living life my own way, and I'm just making a mess I'm so sorry for my attitude the way I speak to people for the hatred that's in my heart for the things I do and say I'm sorry would you please forgive me today I love you so much I thank you for dying on that cross I want to confess with my mouth that you are Lord Jesus is Lord I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead I ask you this day to be my Lord and my Savior, and I want to surrender my life to you. Please help me. I love you, and I say this prayer in Jesus' name. And for the second group, for those of you, come on, guys, you know that relationship's not right. You know there's a distance between you and God. Well, then I want to pray this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, <laughs> I fell in love with you, and you... I gave my life to you. You surrendered all for me. And I surrender to you. And I go to church and I do read my Bible. Maybe not enough. And maybe I only pray to you when I want things. I'm so sorry. My relationship with you has become a bit distant. And I want to draw back to you today. Please forgive me, Lord. Please help me to know you more. As Moses cried out, to you. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord. Please teach me your ways, Lord. Please help me to get through this life, knowing you and holding you in first position. I surrender to you once again on this 4th of March. And I say this prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your time. We've just gone over by about five minutes. Um, just before we wrap up, guys, um, I've got some little feedback things here. 
I'd really, really appreciate it if you would just take time to fill one of those out for me. Um, I think Johnny's going to hand them out now with some pens and pencils. You can just leave them on your table or your chair. It'll take you literally a minute to do that, and it will really help us to, um, to organize any kind of feedback. Would you, would you do that for me? Would, would all of you do that? Would you commit to just filling that in? That would be fantastic. And secondly, um, my book is available at the back there, okay? They cost me um, four pound each from the publisher. That's what I have to pay for them. And they sell for 9.99. If any of you can afford to pay full price for one today, that will help me to be able to give one away to someone that doesn't have any money. Um, also, if you're here today and you don't have any money, then please just take one. You can have one. If you've only got two quid, pay two quid for one, whatever you can, okay? Um, don't feel ashamed by asking the lady at the back there, um, I don't have any money, can I have a book? I'm saying to you, you must take one. So don't let money be an object. I think I've only got about 36 with me. Um, if you're a Christian, this book's not really written for Christians, okay? I've been very specific by going undercover with the gospel here. I've targeted this into the true crime genre because I noticed in Waterstones and Smiths, they don't have any Christian testimony books whatsoever. But the true crime section is quite well read. And so I targeted the true crime section. It's not a Christian testimony book, but it is. It's a true crime biography. So it's the kind of book that you can give away to your non-Christian friend who might normally roll their eyes when you give them any kind of book. I'm sure you've done it. I've done it. There you go, mate. There's a book to help you know God. And they just go, Pff. This kind of book, you can maybe even say, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I'll like this book, but you might. It's uh, about this, this guy who was a gangster. Okay? The last thing they're going to get is the gospel message. The gospel is very clearly proclaimed at the end of this book here. So it's an evangelistic tool. So if you do get it, read it, but please pass it on to others. And if you want to know more about the ministry that I'm involved in, Escape Ministries, again, by the books, there's a little leaflet. You can pick one of those up there. It's just got some more information. I just want to hand you back over to Johnny now. Uh, I want to thank Jonathan for having me here today, and Johnny. And I want to thank you guys. And again, I really appreciate you taking time to fill these forms out. God bless you. Thank you, John.